Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. As you regulars know, around here we're fond of touting the virtues of the Old Testament. Listen, many, many churches claim to be Bible-believing, Bible-centered ministries, but then they rarely teach or preach from the Old Testament. I suspect that if Jesus came to preach in many of our churches today, someone's going to say, what's he talking about? Because all Jesus ever taught from was the Old Testament. To him, it was the Bible. It was the Word of God. Now, if you want to be completely accurate and slightly sarcastic, we have no record of Jesus ever quoting a single New Testament passage. Well, yeah, genius, it didn't exist during his lifetime then if the Old Testament was all Jesus needed to communicate his message, wouldn't you say then that it must be important and effective? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 When Paul wrote that, he was speaking exclusively of the Old Testament. His word choice, as well as the fact that the New Testament had not been compiled yet, and even though many of the documents that would become the New Testament were already written, and some well known by this time, Timothy and the others who were to receive this letter knew what Paul meant. When Paul said all scripture, they knew what he meant. He meant the Hebrew scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament. There in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul is endorsing the Old Testament as something that should be used for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Listen, Paul's job was to spread the good news of Christ, and he says he was going to do that by using the Old Testament. It's not easy for me to understand how one can expect to get an accurate picture of the anointed, of the Messiah, of the Christ, if you don't use the Old Testament as the foundation. Though it's Variously translated, Augustine is quoted as saying, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Now, can we preach a sermon that would prove that? Of course not. God is not interested in us proving his word. He just wants us to teach it. It's the Holy Spirit's job to prove it. Therefore, and I've made the following statement before, and I'll say it again unequivocally. Denying the truth of Scripture, denying the usefulness of the Old Testament, simply means you do not have the spirit of all truth. And I don't care if you have a DD or an MD, professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute or the Pope himself. If you deny the truth of Scripture, you are without the Holy Spirit. How dare you say something like that? Well, I didn't. Paul did. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 
Enough said. Let's move on to today's lesson. Surprise! It's from the Old Testament. It's actually a part of a series we've covered a few times over the years. Let me start with some scripture. Leviticus 23, 34. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Now, critics of the Bible, and more, more especially the Old Testament, hate the book of Leviticus. In fact, the book of Leviticus is probably the most quoted portion of Scripture by those who want you to see God as something other than worship-worthy. The enemies of God will tell you that the book of Leviticus proves God is cruel and vengeful. They'll at least argue that all God wants to do is spoil our fun, and to show this, they'll refer to the book of Leviticus. Well, for some reason, they seem to ignore the fact that the book of Leviticus also instituted parties, seven of them to be exact. Celebration is an important part of God's agenda for his people. The King James Bible as we quoted above, calls these parties the much more sophisticated and pious-sounding feasts. The Bible will also sometimes refer to them by the far more sterile and frankly boring English word, convocation. Now, of course, we've covered much of this in other installments of this series, but I never really know what order you'll listen to these podcasts, so I will at times cover old ground as I'm briefly doing here. But as with everything in the Word of God, there's much more to this than meets the eye or the ear, depending on how you're absorbing this stuff. And this is why it's so important to pay attention to the whole Bible. You see, everything, every single thing in the Bible has but one purpose, and that is to point us all to the eventual coming kingdom of God on earth. John, I thought you said the purpose of everything in the Bible is to point us to the person and work of Christ. Well, who do you think is going to rule the eventual kingdom of God on earth? The Bible is telling us about our coming king, and perhaps nothing in the Old Testament does that better than the seven feasts of Israel. Let's just briefly mention the seven in order, biblical order, as well as chronological order, by the way. Now, we've covered all of these in past messages. Today, we'll focus on just one, but here they all are. Number one, Passover. Number two, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Number three, First Fruits. Number four, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, as we call it. Number five, Feast of Trumpets. Number six, Yom Kippur. Number seven, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm sure you've heard of most of these, some more than others. The regulars to this program, the regulars to Time in the Chapel, probably know a little bit more than the typical Christian, or Jew for that matter. But I'm certain almost no one knows much about that seventh one there, the Feast of Tabernacles. We're just not taught much about it. Now, there are two reasons I believe there's a dearth of teaching on this, the final Feast of the Seven. First of all, there's really not much to it. It's simple and there are very few instructions given in Scripture. Secondly, the fulfillment of this feast, and then we'll get into what I mean by fulfillment as we go along. Well, the fulfillment of this feast is perceived to be so far off in the future, and then again, when it does get fulfilled off in the future, it'll be just as simple as it was intended to be in ancient Israel per God's instructions. Listen, God is all about simple. It's mankind that makes a spectacle out of everything. God likes plain. Man likes pomp. God likes simple. Man likes ceremony. God loves piety. Man loves pageantry. 
Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God speaking. So let's begin our study on the Feast of Tabernacles by going back to Scripture to discover God's view of how this feast should go, and then we'll move from there. But let me warn you, this is a two-part series. There's no easy way to teach these things in just the time we normally do. So this will be a two-part series. Leviticus 23:33, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be in holy convocation. There it is. Boring, right? Ye shall do no servile work therein. Verse 36. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be in holy convocation unto you, and ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. Now, the next two passages give some general instructions on all of the seven feasts, which we won't cover here today. Let's pick it back up at verse 39. Also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Verse 40, And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in a year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days, all that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now verses 34 and 39 give us the date that this celebration begins, the 15th day of the seventh month. Now to you and me, the seventh month is in the middle of summer. But to the Jews, devout Jews anyhow, the seventh month is at the beginning of the fall. The Feast of Tabernacles is also referred to in Scripture as the Feast of the Ingathering because it's held after all of the crops have been brought in from the fields. And I'm only referencing that, and we'll get into the ingathering either today or in the next podcast, but I'm bringing that up to point out to you that after the harvest, after the crops have been brought in, after the ingathering is, happens in the fall. Exodus 23, 16, and the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. That last part, the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Now, there's so much spiritual meaning here that I may get into, as I said today, but for now, I'm just reading this verse to highlight that what we're talking about is a harvest festival. It's called the feast of ingathering, partly because it's a harvest festival. But we have to be careful because the typical mankind-established harvest festival actually celebrates the harvest. It celebrates the vegetables and the grains and the fruit of the ground. That is not the focus of the Feast of Tabernacles, at least not as God had commanded it, not as God had planned it. The purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering, is to highlight God's faithfulness and provision. Now we'll get into more of that as we move along as well. 
So as I said, the celebration, according to Leviticus 23, verses 34 and 39, was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month. That's the seventh month on God's calendar. The Western so-called modern world does not use God's calendar. We use Pope Gregory XIII's calendar. Now, I have nothing against that calendar, the commonly referred to Gregorian calendar, again, because it's named after the man who instituted it, Pope Gregory. The Gregorian calendar was introduced by Pope Gregory XIII, and that's the calendar we use today, and I have nothing against it. I'm just saying it isn't the same calendar that God uses, and I don't want you to get confused because timing is of immense importance to God, which is rather ironic when you think about it because time does not affect him. Nonetheless, God is precise. And when God says the 15th of the seventh month, he means it. And we're not to change that, which applies to everything that's in God's word. So the seventh month on God's calendar is Tishri. And the month of Tishri appears, by the way, to be one of the most important months of them all by virtue of the fact that three of the seven feasts of Israel are celebrated therein. Now, Tishri corresponds to the September-October time frame on our calendar. Now, this year, I should say the year that I am recording and posting this podcast, which is 2019, the 15th of Tishri just so happens to land on October 13th. However, there's a little more to it than that. It's not that simple to say it lands on October 13th or it is in, it corresponds to October 13th. Now, we've covered this so many times that I'm a little bit concerned it's a bit tedious for you, but I cannot risk confusing new listeners. And listen, if your church has taught you a little bit better, I wouldn't have to do this all the time. But then again, if your church has taught you better, I'd be out of a job. To be honest, I'd, I'd rather you be taught the things of God in your church gatherings than me be employed, believe me. Listen, I love what I do, but I'd gladly give it up in exchange for unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we should all be striving for. So getting back on track, the reason why it's not completely correct to say that in 2019, 15 Tishri is the same as 13 October, and it changes every year. 15 Tishri corresponds to 13 October in 2019, but it was different last year, and it's going to be different next year. And the reason for that is the Gregorian and Hebrew calendars use different reckonings to mark out the year. And therefore, they don't line up year to year. The Gregorian, you see, uses the movement of the earth around the sun to mark out the months, the days, the weeks. And the Hebrew uses the movement of the moon around the earth. Another major difference between the two calendars, and with this, we're really back on track. Listen, I'm sorry, there's so much to talk about. It's not easy to let some of these things pass by. I don't want people to get confused. I don't want people to get bored. I don't want people to get sort of bound up and scratching their heads and thinking, what's he talking about? Another major difference between the two calendars is when the day begins. So in the Western world, dominated by the Gregorian calendar, the new day begins at midnight. Well, in the Hebrew calendar, the new day begins at sundown. So that's why I say it's a bit inaccurate to say that 15 Tishri is 13 October, because it's only 13 October for about half a day, and then it switches to 14 October and stays 14 October until sundown when the Hebrew calendar then turns to 16 Tishri. 
And that's why I cannot just let that go by without at least a little bit of explanation. Now you may be asking, why is it like that? Well, no time to explain. Now I posted this podcast on October 13th of 2019 and tonight at sundown it's going to be 15 Tishri in this part of the world and the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles according to God's commandment will begin. And yes, I did say commandment. God commanded these parties. You know, if you and I are speaking to a friend of ours who just so happens to be having a New Year's Eve shindig, which is a weird word when I look at it. And our friend tells us, hey, make sure you come over. Well, you know, you and I can ignore that if we want to, because that would be a party invite. Invitations are optional. They come with that RSVP thing. Well, let me tell you, there's no RSVP connected with God's parties. Your only response is come when God says come. When God said there was going to be a party on the 15th of Tishri, you had better be there. But why? Two reasons. Number one, because God said so. Number two, see number one. But I must admit, and you must admit, Making a party mandatory seems a little unusual. Why would God command the Israelites? And by the way, that part is very important. The commandment is not for Christians. It's not for Gentiles. It's not for non-Jews. The commandment is for the children of Israel. That's the precise language of Leviticus. Let's read it again. Verse 33 of chapter 23. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. That party is not for Christians. That party is not for non-Jewish practicing Gentiles. That party is for the children of Israel. As are all the feasts of Israel. That's why they're called the feasts of Israel. John, then why do you talk about them? Because they're a window into Christ. They are meant to tell the story of Jesus. They were at first meant to tell the story of Jesus to the children of Israel. And they remain. Stories of Jesus to the children of Israel. We're just peeking in and watching. We cover these seven feasts of Israel because there's so much spiritual truth in them. There's so much faith-building truth in them that you cannot ignore them. That's why God commanded the Israelites to have a party. God was commanding them to tell the world about the coming king and the coming kingdom. That's why the Old Testament exists. That's why the New Testament exists. That's why the Apocrypha does not belong in the, quote, canon of Scripture. Because it's not speaking of Christ. So now let's take a few minutes to talk about the ancient celebration of this feast or festival or convocation. So, as you can imagine, the Israelites in ancient times did not call this the Feast of Tabernacles since none of those words had been invented yet. The ancient Hebrew name for this feast was simply Sukkah. The modern adapted spelling makes it look like Sukkot or even Sukkoth. But the original Hebrew is pronounced poorly by me, Sukkah. Now, God didn't give this feast this name. In fact, he didn't name any of these feasts. People did. 
And people name this Sukkah because Sukkah in the Hebrew means, you guessed it, tabernacles. But tabernacle is a rather fancy word with a fancy connotation, at least the way the word is used now. And a fancy connotation is actually the opposite of what God intended. You'll actually hear some people refer to this festival as the Feast of Booths. And that's a far more accurate word. I don't exactly like it, but it's a more accurate word. So let's go back to Leviticus for just a moment. Again, we're in chapter 23, this time verse 41. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42, listen to this. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Now, the reason the people decided to call this Feast of Tabernacles, or again, more true to the original sense, Feast of Booths, or even just Tabernacles or just Booths, in the Hebrew Sukkah, is because God told the people that part of this celebration consisted of them dwelling in booths. Okay, then, why booths? That seems rather odd, don't you think? Well, God tells them why, and frankly, it's a very good reason. Again, we'll start with verse 41. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's intention for what is called sukkah, booths, tabernacles, is for the people to remember it was a reminder that God took care of them in the desert when they left the land of Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of God's provision. Now, more on that later. It's important for you to know that God had a purpose for the Feast of Tabernacles. He had a purpose for commanding the people to dwell in booths, and that was to remind them that God himself had provided for them. Now, from here, I want to start describing the activities of the feast as it was celebrated in ancient times. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. You don't believe me, do you? Yeah, me either. Here we go. Now, of all the feasts of Israel, there is perhaps no other that was celebrated with such great joy. And I mean, why not? As we just said, this was a time for the people to reflect on God's goodness, on his love for them, on his provision for them, how he's taken care of them. This feast was centered on how much God cares about his people. It was a reminder that God provided for the children of Israel when they desperately needed it. Now, in contrast, the feast that immediately preceded this one, Yom Kippur, and we covered that one in the previous podcast, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a very solemn feast. The theme of that celebration, if you want to call it that, was a constant reminder of the sinful failures of the people in the presence of a holy God. That was not a very joyful feast, at least through most of it, it was a reminder that they were sinners. No one likes to be reminded that they're a sinner. Nobody likes to celebrate being a sinner. That was the theme of Yom Kippur. That was what happened just days before the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I repeat, that very solemn sin-reminding Feast of Yom Kippur 
was just celebrated a few days before. At the very next feast, this one we're speaking of, the Feast of Tabernacles, the people must have felt that not only were their physical needs met, but with the memory of the sacrifices for the covering of their sins still fresh in their minds from the Day of Atonement, they could feel like God was now near to them, that their spiritual defilement was taken care of at Yom Kippur. It was taken care of just a few days before on the Day of Atonement, that their sins were covered and they were led away into that desert by the fit man. In fact, I want you to hear this. The root word for sukkah is sachach. And sachach means, get this, now listen to me. The root word for sukkah is sachach. And it means cover or covering, defense or hedge in. The booths that God made the children of Israel dwell in were symbolic of his covering over them in every possible way, and that must have been a glorious, joyful feeling. We continue. As the years went on and the people were settled in the land and actually living in permanent housing, the festivities included, and they still do, by the way, building temporary huts or shelters that they would live in, more or less, for the duration of the festival. Now remember, at the moment, we're just referring to the ancient celebrations, the way that the children of Israel celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles when the temple was the central focal point of worship. This is significant to know because the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrim feasts. Now, just as it was for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks, or as we call it now, Pentecost, one of the requirements of the Feast of Tabernacles was that each Jewish male must make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to participate in the festivities. This was a very important feast, and it was celebrated in a very specific way when the temple stood. So once the pilgrims arrived, the booths that they were to dwell in were being constructed. And then during and throughout the festivities, various sacrifices would be offered. In fact, more sacrifices were required at this feast than at any other time. And then God added this last requirement. Listen to this. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. That's Leviticus 23, 39. God said, you must have a seven-day feast. You must come to Jerusalem for it. You must build booths. You must make sacrifices. And you must begin and end the whole thing with the Sabbath. Those were God's requirements. And to the people, those requirements meant that the Feast of Tabernacles was very important to God. You could say the whole thing was sacred and simple, just like God himself. Unfortunately, as discussed earlier, sacred and simple are not a combination that men care for. So we add. Now remember, this sacred and simple feast fell on 15 Tishri. Well, as joyous as this feast was, it was not the only thing on the people's minds by the middle of Tishri. You see, the society of ancient Israel was overwhelmingly agrarian. Nearly all Jews at that time were farmers. Their economy and way of life depended on successful growing seasons. And nothing, at least in that region and at that time, nothing had a greater impact on successful growing seasons than rain. Even to this day, in that land, water is more important than any other element. 
truly water from heaven was and is crucial to the survival of Israel. Now, there's so much spiritual meaning here, but I have to keep moving. We'll make our way back to the spiritual meaning eventually, of course. Now, the reason I bring up rain is that the Feast of Tabernacles, the 15th of Tishri, just so happened to come near the beginning of the very short but very important rainy season in Palestine. Naturally, therefore, the people were concerned about the coming rains, and that heightened anticipation made its way in a very big way into the customs and ceremonies that developed around the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, these are the way the people began celebrating these festivals. You heard what God requires. God required it be a seven-day feast. God required that they be in Jerusalem for it. He required that they build booths and make sacrifices, and they begin and end with a Sabbath. That's how God said to celebrate it, simple and straightforward. Well, what we're about to describe is not how God had intended it. It's how mankind took it over. And one of the ways mankind took it over, one of the ways that the Jewish leadership changed it or added to it is probably more important, is to bring with it this idea of the great need for water. Now, making its way into this, was what some call the water libation ceremony. Here's what it happened in the water libation ceremony. Each morning of that seven-day feast, a priest, some say it was the high priest himself, some people say it was a group of priests. Now remember, this is a ritual that's not been performed in 1900 years, so some of the details may not be precise. Anyhow, a priest or priests would walk down to the pool of Siloam accompanied by a procession of joyous worshipers who would be singing and playing music throughout. Remember, to the Jews, this feast was one of great joy and therefore the atmosphere was festive and jubilant. Then when the priests and the procession arrived at the source, at the pool of Siloam, a very specific amount of water was collected. Now, following that, following the collection of that very special amount of water, the procession turned and headed back to the temple, and they returned with equal zeal and joy. Then the procession re-entered the city by way of the southern entrance known as the Water Gate. Now, some say it's the Water Gate because of this celebration. I'm not so convinced of that. But nonetheless, it was indeed the southern gate, the Water Gate, that they entered. Now, at the same time that this water-gathering procession was underway, another procession was making its way to a place just south of Jerusalem called Matzah, where the branches of the many willow trees in that region were gathered for this same ceremony. The water and the willow branches were gathered for this very same celebration. Then the willow branches were brought to the temple and then laid on the altar with the ends sort of drooping over the side, creating what looked like a a leafy canopy. Back over at the water gate, you would be able to hear three blasts coming from silver trumpets as the drawn water for the ceremony enters the city. Then the scene is made all the more exciting as all the priests in unison exclaim from the book of Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Joy, water, and salvation, or redemption, or deliverance even, are the themes of this feast. Now I'm sure many of you are getting ahead of me, that's fine. But let me just quickly finish up the description of this ancient and spiritually crucial ceremony. 
the priest then, and again, let me just say that none of this is scriptural, but it is interesting. All of these details come to us not from the Bible, but from the Talmud. Now, it, that doesn't bother me. We've talked about the Seder. Remember Passover time, we talk about the Seder? None of that is scriptural either. But for some reason, it aligns to the, to the spiritual meanings of the feast. Let's keep going. As I said, what we're about to describe is not from the Bible, but from the Talmud. It's Talmudic and not scriptural. Now, you may or may not know what the Talmud is. Simply put, the Talmud is an extra-biblical document written by noted scholarly rabbis of the past that expand on what's found in the law. So let's get back to the ceremony. So the priest then slowly makes his way to the altar, still carrying the very special golden pitcher filled with the water from Siloam. At the altar, there are two basins made of silver. And by the way, there's a lot of silver in this ceremony. Remember, silver is the symbol of redemption in the Bible. At the altar, there are two silver basins, which actually drain to the base of the altar. One of those basins is used for the regular drink offerings of wine, and the other is used for this once-a-year water libation ceremony. By the way, a libation, in case you're wondering, is a liquid offering made to a deity. In this case, the water is poured out into the silver basin as an offering to the one and only true God. And all of this, as you can imagine, was considered a highly ritualized visual prayer for rain. The need for rain came into the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. Not in the Bible. But I will again say, interesting nonetheless. And in fact, you're going to see later that Jesus uses this non-scriptural ceremony to make a scriptural point. So immediately following the ceremonial pouring out of the water, the temple music begins following another triple blast of those silver trumpets. Once again, the priests break out in song and John, why are you giving us such excruciating detail? What do I care about this for? I want you to get a sense of how joyful and celebratory this great feast was. Once the silver trumpets have been blown, the priests start singing the Hallel. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the Hallel. You have if you've listened to us before. The Hallel are also commonly known as the praise psalms and specifically refer to Psalms 113 through 118. Those are the praise psalms. Now, of course, many, many psalms are psalms of praise. But these psalms, the praise psalms, are especially important to the Jewish people, and they're sung and recited during the most holy days and holy celebrations, including, of course, the festivities that make up the Feast of Tabernacles, the praise psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Here, at the Feast of Tabernacles, as in other times of rejoicing, the people would actually gather around, and they would join in on the singing at very predetermined times. The people were a part of singing these praise psalms. Here at the Feast of Tabernacles and other places. It must have been exhilarating as the entire congregation, because remember, these are Jews that came from all over the land. The males of the tribes had to come, the Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem and get involved in these ceremonies. So here they are, there must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people singing the praise psalms. It must have been Amazing to hear the entire congregation singing, for instance, verse 25 of Psalm 118. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. 
By the way, believe it or not, you know some of the Hebrew in this verse. And I bet you didn't even realize it. The English phrase, save now, save now, I beseech thee, Psalm 118, verse 25. The English phrase, save now, in the original language is Hosanna. You've heard that word before, haven't you? Hosanna? Perhaps you've said the word Hosanna before. How about this, Matthew 21, 8. Tell me you haven't heard this before. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches. John is more specific in his rendition of the story. This is Matthew. John is a little bit more specific. He said they cut down palm branches. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches or palm branches from the trees and they strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that follow cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I'm sure you've heard those two verses, haven't you? Perhaps during your local Palm Sunday services, you've heard the word Hosanna. Matthew 21, 8 and 9 is the scene of the so-called triumphant entry. Matthew 21, 8, 9 is very often read and celebrated in Christian churches the week before Easter Sunday, many times called Palm Sunday. It's called Palm Sunday because the people say Hosanna and they wave palms. In that scene found in Matthew, the one we just read, the people were shouting Hosanna at Jesus. And while we're at it, let me just state that while the people were exclaiming Hosanna at the water libation ceremony, the priests were walking around the altar, get this, waving palm branches. Starting to see why we go into detail, starting to see why I said at the beginning that the Old Testament must be used as your foundation for teaching about Christ, about Jesus? Listen, if you don't take the time to truly study God's Word, then your faith will suffer and you'll be of no use to God. If someone were to come up to you and ask you why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you don't know Scripture, you don't know the Old Testament, then you're not going to have a good answer. Because he told me is not a good answer. Listen, in my opinion, it's better not to tell people you're a Christian if you're an ignorant Christian or a lazy Christian or a barely interested Christian, because the enemies of God are going to use your ignorance, laziness, and apathy, not against you, but against God. Knowing why it's so important that Matthew 21 is in the gospel will save souls. Knowing that there's a connection between the celebration of joy and water and salvation of ancient times to our Lord is important and useful. Telling someone that when the people shouted Hosanna to Jesus, they were actually quoting a psalm, a praise psalm, is important. Otherwise, they too will become uninterested. And they too will become useless to God. God gave us this Bible for a reason. It is to tell the story of the coming king. All right, we have to keep going. I suspect this is going to be a very long lesson. I know, too late. Now, for the past few minutes, we've been describing the ceremony of the pouring of the water, the water libation ceremony, as we called it at the beginning of the section. We went over the ritual steps of some of the surrounding celebration that occurred during the ceremony. But listen to me, this is a little confusing, so you have to listen closely. 
the actual celebration of the water pouring. Again, we talked about the ceremony and the steps of the ceremony a moment ago. But the celebration of the water pouring ceremony followed in the evening in what Ken Howard, the author of the very fine book, Feast of the Lord, called the temple lighting ceremony. In the Hebrew, it is Simchat Beit Hashoeva, more or less translated, the rejoicing of the house of water drawing. Now that's a little confusing. So let me just say it again quickly. The ceremony of the drawing of the water and taking it to the altar, that occurred in the morning. That was involving the priests and some of the congregation. That was a very joyful procession. It also included the gathering of the willow branches. That's the ceremony that happened. In the evening is when they celebrated it. They celebrated it with the Simchat Beit Hashoeva. Now, the very, very interesting thing that I want you to note is that this ceremony, this celebration was dominated by light. Now, even though this was a celebration of water drawing, light was the major element to the observer. In fact, again, interestingly, this feast was celebrated in the very middle of the lunar cycle. And therefore, in the evenings, when this particular ceremony, the Simchat Beit Hashueva, was being celebrated, there was a giant full harvest moon illuminating the whole scene. And now, as if that light were not enough, and when God is concerned, more light is always the preference, as if the light of the moon were not enough, during each night of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the middle of the outer court of the temple, there would be four enormous candelabras, each containing vast stores of oil, most likely olive oil, to keep the flaming wicks burning all night. In fact, these candelabras were so large that in order for the oil to be refilled, the young priest would have to climb ladders. That's how enormous these candelabras were. And they gave off this intense light. In fact, it was so intense that it was said that the light of these candelabras lit up every courtyard in the city. Now listen to the description of these ancient festivities as described by the very excellent website, My Jewish Learning. Quote, A Levite orchestra of flutes, trumpets, harps, and cymbals accompanied torchlight processions, and men who had earned the capacity for real spiritual joy through their purity, character, and scholarship danced ecstatically to the hand-clapping, foot-stomping, and hymn-singing crowds." Now the author then adds a little interesting bit of flair to the whole thing when he relates what sounds a little more apocryphal than actual, but who am I to say? It's fun to hear nonetheless. Quote, We do not imagine our distinguished sages as acrobats and tumblers, but they were often agile physically as well as mentally. Rabbi Simon ben Gamaliel juggled eight lighted torches and raised himself into a handstand on two fingers, a gymnastic feat no one else could master. Others juggled eight knives, eight glasses of wine, or eight eggs before leaders and dignitaries, unquote. The entire grand spectacle is held until the wee hours of the morning, and then it's repeated each night from the second night of the festival all the way to the end of the feast. There was nothing in ancient Israel that could match the pageantry, joy, and wonder of this celebration. The ancient rabbis would say, He that hath not beheld the joy of the drawing of the water hath never seen joy in his life. Can you imagine? Night after night, day after day, the celebration goes on. Now, some may say, well, big deal. There's lots of multi-day festivals that go on and on like that. 
I suppose. But can you imagine a festival that goes on for seven straight days focused on praising and praying and worshiping? And again, yes, I've said many times, none of these things are found in the Bible. Most of it was added by the religious leaders. But the seven-day feast was established by God, and he wanted himself to remain the center of it all. And for the most part, I think those ancient Jews did that. And then came the seventh night. You would think by then, everybody's worn out. You would think after continuous celebration, it would be time to kind of wrap it up. Bring it down a notch. Sim it down now. But no, that's not what happened. It was on this seventh night that the intensity was actually ramped up. On all the other nights, for example, there would be three blasts of the silver trumpet. Well, on this night, there were 21, three sets of seven. On the other nights, the priests circled the altar only once. This night, they marched around it seven times. As you regulars know, the number seven is very important. No time to get into that. On this night, with each circuit around the altar, the priests would sing the Hosanna verse. Save now. In other words, Hosanna. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And then the people with even greater zeal than the nights before would be waving those palm branches and singing loudly and with great enthusiasm. It was even more grand than the previous nights. No wonder this particular day of the ceremony was called, now get this, Hosanna Rabbah, or Great Hosanna. The seventh night was the Great Hosanna. One more time, let me summarize this feast. It was about water, light, and salvation. Water, light, and salvation. Now let me read you something from the Gospels. The Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. The Apostle John is talking about the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He calls it the great day of the feast. It was the Hosanna Rabbah, the great Hosanna. It was the seventh day. It was when all of this was culminating. It was bigger than ever. John is talking about a Hosanna Rabbah at which Jesus himself was present. John is describing the scene. It was the last day. It was the special, the very special, the very special since ancient times, final day, the Hosanna Rabbah. It was a time of heightened expectation, heightened awareness for the need for the coming life-giving water from heaven. And this carpenter's son stands up and says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Jesus was among the crowd watching this whipped up, unfolding ancient ceremony and he says something and well let me say this it's really not just the words but it's his actions the act of getting up at this crucial point in the ceremony is what makes this significant for the seven previous days people have been thinking nothing but water Nothing but light, nothing but salvation. And Jesus interrupts it all and says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What a jerk. Wouldn't you think that if you're in the crowd? Listen, I hate when people just interrupt me by playing their music too loud on the train but get up in the middle of this very important, very sacred, very religious celebration, something these people believe is crucial to their survival, and this guy gets up and overtly tries to make it about himself. 
Why would anyone think that he's a good and wise peacemaker? If you don't believe that he's actually the subject and meaning of all that symbolism, of all that was going on in this feast, because obviously his words and his actions shows that he believes that, if you don't believe the Feast of Tabernacles has anything to do with him, then you cannot think of him as anything other than an arrogant jerk. Now, many of you have heard me make this argument before, but many more probably are shocked by what I'm saying. Why are you saying such things about my blessed Lord? If you don't believe that he's all of what the Feast of Tabernacles represents, life-giving water, sight-giving light, and eternity through salvation and redemption, then you are a hypocrite to call him your blessed Lord. Stop playing church. Stop pretending to be a Christian if you don't believe that God's word is all true. Jesus doesn't need your pat on the head. Jesus doesn't need your condescending, you know, head nod of tacit approval. He's not interested in your amen. He's not interested in your Lord, Lord. If you're not willing to acknowledge that he is the very reason for your existence. Listen, give the religious leaders a little credit. At least they had the courage to put some muscle behind their disbelief. They knew what he was trying to say. They didn't think he was adorable in the way he said that thing. They didn't condescendingly smile at him as if he were just a harmless blowhard. And listen, Jesus didn't stop there. He finished the job with what he said just a little later, but in the very same atmosphere. Now get this. Tell me this isn't the most pompous thing you've ever heard. And remember, this is probably right before all those giant candelabras are snuffed out at the close of this magnificent holiday. Listen to this. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, what I find absolutely incredible is that he waited until the very last and greatest and grandest night of the feast to say something like this. I mean, the people were completely engrossed in light and water and salvation and provision. And Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Listen, if he wasn't a jerk, then he had to be crazy. Why would he say that on that day? Either he was just an attention-seeking jerk, crazy, or he's exactly who he said he was. The modern church is now trying to tell you that it's okay to worship him even though you don't really believe he is the subject of the Feast of Tabernacles. The modern liberal church has somehow crafted a story that says that Jesus can still be called Lord even though he is probably a liar or at best delusional. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. We've left out so much. We should close, but before we do, let me just say a few more things. I told you that Jesus will fulfill 
all of the seven feasts of Israel. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that he's already fulfilled this one. He's not. Despite what he did and said in his lifetime, that was not the fulfillment. Those passages from the Gospel of John were not the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, but rather it was Jesus showing that he is what the people have been seeking through their heavily ritualized celebration. Jesus was reminding them that despite all of the focus being elsewhere by their own misapplication of the significance of the feast, that God's word had intended this to be a celebration of the Messiah, of him. Next time, we'll pick it up from here. Friends, God is doing something absolutely incredible. And we have a record of it right here. Do not miss the wonder and majesty of God's plan. He's calling you to be a part of it. Let me urge you to reach out. Recognize that you belong to him. Ask him to forgive your shortfallings. Ask him to accept Jesus as payment for your sin. And then turn over the rulership of your life to the coming king. We'll continue this next time. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.